The following program is a presentation of Grand Slam Ministries. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to week three of this brand new venture called the Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. To those of you listening on all of our over-the-air radio stations, welcome. If you're listening online, archived, welcome as well. Just ask that, uh, A, you continue to listen. If you have any comments about anything, you can always email me, dan at danscottshow.org. And we would love for you to, on our social media, like, share, help us grow the audience and continue to grow this venture that God has has led us into. We don't have a lot of time to play around this week because the interview that you're going to hear is going to take up almost the entire allotment of time that we have. So I want to jump right into it. It's been a little over a year ago, actually, that I did this interview with nationally known comedian Jeff Allen, who is a funny, funny man. You can find him on YouTube. You can go to his website, jeffallencomedy.com. He is touring now. He speaks at churches as well. His testimony is one of the most riveting you're going to hear from anyone, anywhere. And even as long as this is, I actually edited about 15 minutes out of the original interview. But you're going to get almost 50 minutes of Jeff Allen. And when we started the conversation, we began by talking about, of all things, growing up, his passion for the sport of baseball. I lived and breathed it. I, uh, I, you know, my brother was five years older than me, so I started playing before I, I have even memory, five, six, seven years old. I, uh, I remember I was, my birthday's June 5th, and if you weren't seven or eight years old by June 1st, you weren't allowed to play Little League, and I would have had to wait another year. And I remember my parents calling down and begging them to give me an exemption. And I was certainly good enough to play Little League. I mean, I, So anyway, I was in a bathtub when my mother yelled upstairs. She goes, your, your new baseball coach is here. And I ran downstairs naked. I was so excited. I, didn't even, I forgot to get close <laughs> to meet my first baseball coach. Uh, it was my passion, um, and I tell you this, uh, I was 14 or 15, and I um, I won a um, MVP award for an all-star tournament. It was a proud moment in my life, and I was sitting in the living room with the trophy, and my father came in. And he sat me down, and this is when he gave me his view on God the universe. He said, uh, there's going to come a time in your life. The goal was that I would play professional. That was everybody, we talked like that. Um, you're going to play professional ball and, and, and things. You know, this is, that's the plan. So anyway, he sat me down and he said, as you advance through um, these ranks, of every level that you play in, Eventually, people are going to come to you and tell you you have a God-given talent, and this is what you tell them. 
and he went off on a rant of how you tell him to kiss your backside. There is no God. God had nothing to do with this. He said, what really bothers me about these God people is they're never there for all the hard work. They just see the finished product and say, God did that. You know, I was out every even in the winter. I was out throwing a ball against the wall and, and working on my reflexes and, and you know and all of this. I, I worked at baseball. I worked, worked, worked. By the time I was in high school, I was in three leagues in the summer. Uh, one of them was a men. Uh, you know, I remember uh, I was a catcher in my junior year. I got moved to catcher, and we had a pitcher that got drafted by the White Sox. He threw over 90 miles an hour. And that he was before he went to college instead of to the pros. He wanted to go to college, so he didn't take him up on their offer. So he was playing in a summer men's league, and their catcher couldn't catch him because he threw too hard. So they called me in to catch some games. So I had two or three leagues going on at the same time, and uh, my father tells me there's no God, and. Uh, I bought it. I just started telling my friends, you know, there's no God. There's no. And um, within four years, I was out of baseball. And it wasn't that I got injured. It wasn't that. It just the all of a sudden what my father neglected to mention to me was what he called hard work was joy. Nobody ever had to tell me to go out do baseball I they had to tell me to clean my room they had to tell me to do homework they had to tell me to do all these things that I did not like baseball was not hard work it was joy and when I heard the term years later years later that the term the, the definition of inspiration is God breathed I believed God breathed that into me I was put on this earth I felt like to play baseball that's what I was there for. And it, I had a mourn. When I dropped out of college because I got, I started drinking not too long after that. And uh, all of a sudden, baseball got moved down in my priority list to two or three. Drinking was number one. I just wanted to go out and party on the weekends. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I still managed to hit, I don't know, I think 385 my senior year half drunk or hung over most of the season. Um, I made all the teams, the all-conference team. I think I was second team all-state. I was a catcher in the the state that had a higher batting average than I was. But um, I was invited to some uh, banquets and things that uh, the top players in the Chicago area got invited to. I just looked. I had a certificate. It was funny. I told my wife, I go, uh, this has been laying down in my uh, in my bathroom in my office for years. I, I've never even looked at it. It had my high school letter on it and it had some other things on it. It was just some stuff that my mom left me when she passed. And I pulled it out. It was a certificate, a sports certificate for my high school. I had like seven different records for our high school. Um, I had fewer strikeouts. I had two strikeouts in I had five strikeouts in two years of varsity ball. You know, um, so by college, 
drinking was everything. Uh, I remember when I got recruited, it was a small JC. I, I, I found out later I was drinking at a bar in Chicago in my 20s, and the team manager from our high school came over to me, uh, and he said, did I ever tell you what happened with all your letters from colleges? I go, oh, I didn't even know I got a letter. He goes, no, the coach sent them all back. He had over 30 letters from Division One schools, and uh, not one of them. I didn't see one of them. They were all sent back. Insubordinate would not fit into your program. And uh, I, again, knowing who I was at that point in my life, I would have never fit in a division. I would have never made it. I would have dropped out. Um, the, the drinking was just out of hand. But um, it would have been nice to have the option, you know, to pick a school, you know, and um, go through that process. But college was never discussed in our home. My father never went. My mother never went. So it was never anything discussed. I was a terrible student. But I believe God just removed his breath from that, that inspiration. Just, you know, when you throw it back in his face, you know, he didn't punish me. He just said, I got other people. You know, only so many people on the planet can be inspired to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I believe that wholeheartedly because that's almost what it was like. It was all of a sudden it just became a chore like cleaning your room and doing your homework, you know, you got to work out, you got to batting practice, you know, as a catcher, man, you know, <laughs> you're in on every play, you got to back up first base, you got to, you know, it's just, eh, you know, and halfway through our fall ball at college, my coach came over to me, and goes, you just don't seem to be the guy I recruited. Well, I was half drunk. I was drinking at lunch and then going to baseball practice. You know, so I, at least I stopped doing that because I figured he noticed you know, and, uh, you know, I had a decent year my freshman year, but, um, anyway, it just went away. I haven't touched a ball since then, 40 years. My kids didn't want to play, you know, and, um, I had a morning. I went to a therapist for some other issue and he was a, um, he got to the big leagues and threw his rotator out. And we got to talking about baseball. And he said, have you dealt with the grief of that loss? And I go, no, why would I do that? He goes, why do you think so many grown men sit bars drunk talking about the glory days? That was their only sense of self. And I never thought of it that way, but he's right. It was the only path. I told my wife I've had one true love in my life, and that's baseball. I mean, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be self to be so absorbed in something that that's all you think about. You wake up in the morning and your eyes open up and go, "What can I do today?" Then, I mean, and um, and then just to have it gone. Uh, when they told me I was ineligible my sophomore year because of grades, I remember sitting on the in the gym just sobbing. What am I going to do? You know, and you know, would have been nice to think about that while I was getting drunk all the time, but. Uh, that's the alcoholism. You know, you, you destroy everything in its path. It destroyed everything in, in my path. We are visiting with Jeff Allen, uh, comedian on the uh, Dan Scott Show podcast. Uh, this is uh, episode five of the rebrand. Uh, in the midst of, of all of this and in the 
time afterwards, when did you realize that you were funny and that maybe comedy might be a road for you to travel? That's interesting. I, uh, I was, I got out of college. I met somebody at college, like the girl I was dating, her best friend's boyfriend was a brilliant, I mean, brilliant close-up magician. And I remember we were sitting in a bar and, and said, I do magic. And I kind of rolled my eyes. He goes, uh, here, give me, give me five coins. So he, he takes a quarter, a dime, a nickel, a penny, and I don't know, whatever else, another penny maybe. And he proceeds to push each coin through the table into a glass. And it blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. Um, I had never seen close-up magic. I've seen Doug Henning on TV and things. So I said, how do, you, how do you learn to do that? He goes, uh, well, I, I, you, know, you learn. I mean, it's, so anyway, I started Close-Up Magic. And uh, I got fairly adept at it by the time I left college. And I was able to entertain at parties and things. And, uh, I saw my brother was a musician. And he, he had a couple of comedians open for him. And I remember thinking, wow, I would love to do that. You know, I don't know if I can. I mean, you know, I made my friends laugh. You know, a lot of us do. I, I, you know, so I don't, you know, I don't know if you ever think you could do it, but anyway, I, I, I took me months to work the courage up. I found a comedy club. I was in a jewelry company at the time and 20, 21 years old, maybe. And, um, I was going to, um, uh, do comedy. I went into this comedy club and I just didn't have the courage. I just, I, you know, didn't, it took me three months August to November to finally work the courage up to go on stage. And I did the magic and I was dropping things. I had terrible stage fright, terrible nerves. Um, so to answer your question is I, I wasn't funny for a very long time. I, I, I felt that if I could get past the nerves, I could do this. I could get there. Um, I, I didn't understand the process of stand-up when I started. I remember months into it, I saw a guy writing into a notebook, and I go, you write this stuff out? I thought you went on stage and talked about your day. So I would just talk about my day, and it wasn't very funny. you know. Uh, when I finally, uh, there were nights, the first six months I did it, that I, I couldn't even make a minute. I would get, I would draw a blank, my mind would go blank, which has been an issue with auditions for me for 40 years. And I just did it through America's Got Talent. I drew two blanks during the uh, audition process. Um, I just, for whatever reason, there's, you know, there's something there um, that nerve-wise that causes me to, to, to draw blanks. But, um, so no, I wasn't funny. And I had, after two years, I had a club owner tell me, he goes, you'll never make a living at this. And I said, thank you. I said, anybody, anybody who's ever made anything in their life has had some jerk in their life, tell them they won't make anything of their life. You're my jerk. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through this. And, uh, uh, it really, I'm not kidding. Uh, I made a living. I was lucky. Uh, I started in 1978 comedy clubs exploded in 1980. There were more clubs than there were comedians really. So I was able to be bad at something and uh, I was competent enough. I made people laugh, you know, but I wasn't what I would call a a comic i wasn't there yet i didn't know what i wanted to do i was fishing around with different things drugs and alcohol stuff you know but that's when i kind of happened upon the coincidental stuff i found people laughed at my stuff when it when there was truth to it and there was angst behind it so my first 
big story that ever got huge laughs was I had a, a my third Volkswagen. They were, they're terrible cars. Um, I but they were it was five hundred bucks for a car. You could change an engine on a Volkswagen, the kind I'm talking about. You know, for four hundred dollars, you can. They're four bolts and a and a radio flyer wagon. You know, <laughs> so you can take the whole engine out. You know, so anyway, I would push start this thing. I had to park on a hill because I couldn't afford a new starter. You know, I had to pop the clutch, start. You know, so anyway, I come running into a club one night, almost missed my show because my stupid car wouldn't start. And I hit the stage and I start screaming about the stupid Volkswagen. You know, if you can get the heater working, it'll burn every hair off your ankle. You know, the, the frosting system's nothing but your breath in a rag. You know, and on and on about the bug. And I'm, all of a sudden I hit me in the middle of the story. Gosh, people are laughing. They're laughing hard. This is amazing. You know, so that was like my first breakthrough as a comic. Was there's, There has to be some truth to it. And uh, there has to be some kind of angst behind it. So um, anyway, I started looking for things that annoyed me. And uh, boy, it's amazing how many things there are out there. I, and, and you know what? I, I'm going to resist the temptation to say something about that's when you got married. Uh, as we as we transition yeah, into that yeah, part about yeah. it. So. What'd you do before you got married? I starved. That's what I did. I starved. <laughs> We're visiting with Jeff Allen. Uh, just just uh, an incredible comedian, uh, funny man, uh, with, with a great, great testimony about what Christ has done to uh, in his life, through his life. Um, and he's out on tour now uh, in the uh, America that I grew up in tour. We'll talk about some of those upcoming dates as we get to the end. And, and Jeff, I told you that I wanted to be respectful of your time, and you were gracious enough to to kind of adjust so we could have some more time. And, and I know it's easy for people to go out and on YouTube and they can find your testimony and they can they can do that if they want to. But as, as much as, as you can share in, in the time that we have here, I'd like you to walk us through that because there is just some incredible moments there that resonate with me. I shared a little bit with you about the similarity of, of, uh, of our stories when we both came to Christ. We got there in different ways, but uh, I was a knucklehead. I almost lost everything I love because I was an idiot or moron, to borrow your phrase or word. But uh, just uh, I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to let you go. I think it's important to do that because I want people to hear exactly how you came to Christ and what a miracle it was that Jesus did in your life. Well, I, I got to back up and lead into it with getting married. I um, I met Tammy at a comedy club. Uh, she was a single mom. I was living on a, I had a mattress on a floor in an apartment in L.A., and I had a uh, 13-inch black and white television I bought at some pawn shop. And um, I met Tammy in November. I flew her and her son out to LA in January and in April I asked her to marry me she got pregnant again in May and we got married in July so that's and the whole time I was drinking I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict so I'm using cocaine and I'm drinking the whole time and uh, I was a binge drinker 
I would dry out for two or three days and then I'd binge for four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever. You know, eventually I would just go, you know, I'm killing myself. I got to stop. I tried to quit numerous times. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time when I was 25. I, I, I had, I had a night where I got so trashed that the guys at the bar tied my shoelaces together after I passed out the bar. So when I stood up, I fell on my face and uh they they were laughing at me and uh i was humiliated and i untied i took one shoe off and i walked home about a mile and a half one shoe on one shoe off crying all the way home and i called my dad up the next day and i said you need to come get me i can't stop drinking i can't and uh, i realized that everybody i was drinking with that night before were brothers of the guys I grew up with. They were the younger brothers that we used to make fun of when we were kids. My friends wouldn't drink with me anymore, my peers. So my dad came and got me and I, and I got some help, but I was still using cocaine. And uh, I was about nine months without a drink. And that kind of gave me a foundation to exist. So I started what I called my own maintenance program of drinking and that was the binge drinking. I would I would stay together enough to do my shows and I would drink alone. Um, the disease of alcoholism is isolation. I think the disease of humanity is isolationism. There's no coincidence that when they want to destroy somebody's life and they throw them in prison, they put them in isolation. We're, we're, we were designed to be in community. And I was never more alone in my life. I mean, I could go to a crowded bar. When I say I drank alone, I, I, you know, I'd go to a crowded bar. There were always people around me, but I was by myself. I always, because if I fell off a stool or embarrassed myself, there was nobody there that knew me that I would worry about. I don't know if you understand that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, when I met Tammy, I decided I needed to get married. I, I needed some responsibility. That was my process of why I needed to get married. It wasn't about falling in love with the one, spending the rest of my life with the one, raising a family. And and it was, I got to do this to get well. So anyway, she got pregnant and it was interesting when she found out she was pregnant, she sobbed. She just sobbed because she knew what it meant. And I was, I was such an idiot. I was a moron. It was like going, hey, this is great. We're going to have another Bambino. Wow, you know. I, I, not even any idea what I was getting myself into. So that <clears throat> we moved to Boston. I, we got married in July. We moved to Boston in August, and I was drinking. And uh, I was able to drink on the road prior to Boston because that's the only place I could make a living. Well, Boston, I was allowed to make a living. I could stay in town and make money, enough money to, to live on. So I didn't have to travel. Well, I started binging at home, and Tammy got to see firsthand what she married. The first time I pulled an all-nighter, I, I, I walked in at 11 o'clock the next morning. She was on the phone sobbing with the club owner, trying to figure out where I was. This was obviously date, you know, pre-date cell phones. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked in, and um, she ended up throwing the phone at me because I was in a great mood. Didn't even begin to understand. I never had anybody. I never had a reason to be anywhere. I mean, I never had any uh, 
demands on my time. I was a single guy, and then I wasn't single. I, I you know, I, I didn't have, you know, a girlfriend for nine, ten months, you know, where we dated and went out, and she would ask me what I'm doing and where are you going, and all of a sudden, I, I, I got this thing, this family that's demanding my time, and I was resentful. Nobody ever asked me, why are you drinking again? You know, why, why are you doing that again? You know, she didn't do nothing about the cocaine. I mean, I, I was robbing Peter to pay Paul so I could pay the, for the coke. And, you know, uh, it doesn't take much time to figure. Something had to give. Something had to give. And um, I came home one night. This is probably eight, nine months into our marriage. Ryan was born in January. We were married in July. So this is probably May of the next year. So Ryan's four months old, five months old. And I came home and uh, tried to put together where all of this guilt I have comes from. I, I really love it when the world tells us that we're not, that guilt is such a bad thing. God gave us guilt so that we would look at our lives and figure out maybe there's something wrong. We're doing something wrong. You know, there's a certain modicum of behavior that one should have as a human being. And guilt reminds us that maybe we're off the rails. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm sitting there. What is wrong? What is all this guilt? Why am I guilty? And I realized it's the family, the family. You know, this all has started with marriage and kids and responsibility and stuff. And, and I'm drinking rum and doing cocaine and, try, you know, and, and trying to figure this all out. And then it dawns on me if I can get rid of the marriage, I'm not, I don't want to be married anymore. Again, we're not even 10 months into this. I'm going, I, I don't want this anymore. And I got to get her to divorce me. I, 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 I'm not going to go ask for a divorce. So in my stupor, I realize if I drag her out of bed and beat her, she'll have to divorce me because what kind of woman can live with a man that would do that to her? You know, I'm telling you, I was insane. So anyway, I had a couple more rums and some more um, coke and worked the courage up. And I walk into the bedroom and uh, I was standing over my wife who's sound asleep, you know, it's like two in the morning. I don't know. Anyway, I start having this crisis of conscience. This is wrong. You know, it is wrong, but it's wrong. I can't do this. I can't, you know, and I'm, and I'm wrestling back and forth. I got to get out of this, you know, and my son starts crying. Ryan, five, six months now, you know, and uh, I start panicking. He's going to wake her up, and I can't, you know, I can't, you know, I'm just going to figure out what I was doing. So anyway, I go to quiet him down, and I end up feeding him in the crib. And um, Tammy took him away from me and calls me insane. You're insane. You're, you're crazy. You realize what you could have done. And I, I, I didn't realize what I could have done. She sat on the end of the bed and fed him. She fed our son. He was crying because he was hungry. And that's when it hit me. I just beat my child because he was hungry and I could have killed him. I could have killed my son. I've, I've, I've got to interject something here because I've heard you tell this story, obviously, before. And it, it, it is a powerful part uh, of your testimony. 
Um, and and it's it sounds strange to say this, but I think you know where I'm going when I say this. It, it takes a lot of courage for you to be able to share that particular portion of your testimony because of all of the, even these years later, the negativity that that conjures up uh, in, in society and in the world, and, and yet you're willing to, to bear your soul where that's concerned. Well, I, I was told early on, if you want to survive alcoholism, you're as sick as your secrets. So obviously this is stuff that I shared with therapists behind closed doors. But the first time I shared it publicly, the men that reached out to me, that told me, they did the same thing. I mean, hundreds of people privately told me that they, they were the same, in the same place, the same, they could have killed their kids. They could have, you know, and um, it's not a, Unfortunately, I've always say this. My story is not uncommon in America with men. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not an uncommon story. You know, un unfortunately, it would be great if I was an anomaly. If people looked at me and said, well, it's rare. You know, it's not. And you're right. I didn't realize 20, 30 years later, uh, you know, I'm 34 years sober now, that that people could end my career based on this, you know, uh, you know, the management has told me to stop sharing it. You know, my wife has mentioned, you know, it's a different world, but it's out there. So I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy. So to me, I look at that man that did that is not me. I'm born again. I'm, I'm not that man. Um, never did it. I, I, it, and, and it's interesting to me. I, I'll look at it this way. My son took the beating for his wife, my, his mom. I was going to beat his mom and he starts crying and he takes, I mean, I, yes, it's, it's shameful. You know, who thinks like that? Well, a crazy, insane drunk thinks like that. And, and that's not an excuse. That's a reality. It would have been horrible. If, if, what kind of horrible man would I have been if I kept doing it? It got me into recovery. I went to AA the next day. I told Tammy, and I said, if you don't take me, I won't go. And if I don't go, I, God, babe, we're not going to make it. I got to quit drinking. This is wrong. I mean, everything about it was wrong. It was humiliating. And uh, anyway, I went in there and they said, pray. I said, to what? And that set me off. That 12-step program set me off on a journey of uh, just, I needed to know if God existed or if he didn't. I mean, I, I wasn't saying that, but that's all of my actions were from that point on trying to figure out if, if there was such a thing as God, I didn't, I didn't believe in God, but um, you know, through self-help new age, that was popular Buddhism. I tried that. I tried, I tried everything uh, to the point where I wound up on humanism with Ayn Rand and, uh, you know, seven years into this 12 step thing. Um, this is why it's supposed to be an anonymous program. I was miserable because I couldn't get my head around the God thing or why anything mattered. 
and um, that was that was my cross to bear was meaninglessness of life. Um, if we had one argument, we had a dozen arguments about my apathy. I tell people all the time, if you're in a marriage state that's full of acrimony, wait till you get to apathy. There's nothing more painful than two people who profess to love each other that are just apathetic about each other. I was apathetic about everything. I didn't care about comedy. I didn't care about the bills. I didn't care about, you know, uh, we were functioning, but barely. And eventually we got to the point where we fell behind in our mortgage. And Tammy would say to me, I get the impression you don't care. And I go, I don't care. She goes, who says that? I go, someone who doesn't care. I go, I, you want truth? I'll give you truth. I don't care. I, 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 I want to care. Believe me. I wake up in the morning, you know, I, I, I understand my responsibilities. We've had those discussions. She goes, look, if I could go out and make the money, I would. She goes, I do everything else. I would, I would get a job. I, but her skill set, you know, we, we were living based on a comedian's skill set. And uh, she could, you know, she was a waitress, you know. And uh, I, I just, I, you know, I, I think back at that time, you know, I feel so sorry for her to have to live with me. She's trying to shake me into like living. I was a walking dead man because I just couldn't figure out why anything mattered. It's all senseless. I found there was a word for it. I didn't know what it was until like years later, but nihilist. I was in nihilism. I just didn't care about anything. And um, God in his infinite wisdom you know, again, this is hindsight. I could see his hand in, in this this journey. Why not exhaust everything the earth has to offer and and then I'll reveal myself to you at the right time. You know, and it's his time, not mine. And I had traded my obsession for alcohol and drugs for golf. I just <laughs> it's it's just as expensive and just as annoying, but it's legal. And um, that was my sanctuary. I would go out to the golf course, and I was always a pretty good golfer. But um, somewhere in my mid-30s, I naively thought that I could get good enough to make a living at it, you know, And um, because I'd broken par a couple times, and you know, but I never had instruction. So I decided to start taking lessons and uh, basically salving the wounds of a, of a failing marriage um, with this. You know, I, I felt that if I could do as well in golf as I was able to do in baseball years earlier, that maybe maybe I could make a living at it, you know. And um, so Tammy grew to resent just the mere mention of the game. I mean, I don't blame her. In hindsight, every spare minute I had, I was at the golf course, either with the kids or by myself. Again, it was my sanctuary. It was my one place I could go that I felt I had control over and something mattered. What my, the process of the game and the score of the game is what something mattered to me. So that was where I was getting meaning, which anybody will tell you, if you assign that to the game of golf, you are setting yourself up for the most <laughs> miserable existence you can ever have. When your self-worth is connected to a score on the golf course, you're in trouble. 
your family's in trouble, the world's in trouble because nothing, nothing is more uncontrollable than the final number. You know, you just, you can go out there. Anyway, I don't want to get into the golf thing, but um, I had found something. And again, God uses everything in our life for his purposes. Romans eight twenty eight, It all gets worked out for the good. I heard about a guy doing comedy for a hundred bucks a week. And uh, he was a multimillionaire businessman. I'm reading Ayn Rand and I'm now I've come to the conclusion. I need to make money. I need to, this will be my new thing. Uh, it only matters how much money I make. And um, I figured if I can, I can learn something about accumulating wealth from someone who's actually accumulated wealth. I'm working with other comics. We're all broke. You know, so what are they going to tell me? Here's a guy who's got money who just wants to do comedy as a hobby. And uh, I find out he's an avid golfer and he belongs to Preston Trail in Dallas, which is a premier club, Muirfield Village in Columbus, Ohio. And he has connections at Augusta National. Soon as I heard that, I told my agent at the time, I want to work with this guy. And he goes, why? Is that that funny? I go, I don't care um, if he's funny or not. He can get me on Augusta. He's my new best friend. So what I didn't know was he was a devout Christian man who went to a church, Bible teaching church. So we're on a golf course one afternoon playing golf. And we're talking about, I'm trying to figure out how to accumulate wealth. And he says, you don't want a lot of money. I go, I don't. He goes, Trust me, Jeff, if you had a lot of money, you'd mismanagement. You don't know how to handle what little you have. But why don't you develop a relate? And he said, you can't enjoy the creation, any part of the creation, until you have a relationship with the one who created it. And I thought, that sounded new agey. That was kind of cool. Where'd you read that at? He says, in the Bible. I never read anybody quote the Bible to me. So anyway, a couple holes are going by. We're talking some more. He said, you know, look, man, you sound like you you're pretty miserable and you want, you know, if, if happiness was an act of human will, we'd all be happy. Right. I mean, you, we will ourselves happy. And I had enough sense to know that's true because I've tried to will myself to care about all the stuff we're losing financially. And I couldn't muster up the caring part to motivate me to work harder or whatever. So that made sense to me. Yes, if happiness was an act of human will, we'd all be happy. I'd will myself because I, I read it in the new age. Mm-hmm. You stand in front of the mirror, you affirm yourself. You know, there's, there's nothing more um, uh, satanic than man, Satan telling man, you are God. Started in the garden. Why does he want you to eat the apple? Why does anyone, you're not, why does he doesn't want you to have his knowledge. In other words, he doesn't want you to be him. Why? Well, that's when we affirm ourselves. Anyway, it has to be connected to something earthly because what do you hold it to? No, the truth is something outside of us, something that designed and created us or something that gives us our value and worth. It's not the temporal external 
things that pass baseball, you know, right. golf, you know. So I wasn't even there yet. But anyway, I, it made sense to me. And I said, that's kind of neat. So after I, he, uh, I finally started quoting the Bible. I said, stop it with the Bible. He goes, what do you mean? I go, you know, who reads the Bible? You know, he goes, I do. And I go, well, yeah, but really. He goes, what's your problem with the Bible? I go, you know, well, God, God's word, you know, really, if, if there was a God, you know, you know, I don't know. It's a little archaic. He says, what's in the Bible you don't think is true? I go, I don't know. I never read the Bible. He goes, well, you're not an atheist. You're a moron, you know. And, um, uh, I, you know, I wanted to react, you know, call him names and things. But then I would have lost Augusta. So um, I, I restrained my tongue. And I said, how so? And he said, I'll give you the short answer to discount it. What you're discounting as existing is an infinite being. In order to discount that, you yourself have to have infinite knowledge of the entire. So you're denying an omniscient being, and you yourself have to be omniscient to really truly deny it. It's a self-defeating argument. You cannot defend an absolute negative. And I looked at him and said, what? What are you talking about? You know, he goes, you're not smart enough to be an atheist. That's basically what he told me i wasn't smart enough to figure out if he was insulting me or not so anyway we parted company that week with we'll stay in touch he said i like you i don't know why he said that i was a foul-mouthed angry bitter jaded club-throwing lunatic and um he said can i sign you up for bible study tapes from our church in denton texas and i said you can as long as it doesn't cost me money you can sign me up for anything you want. So he signed me up for the Bible tapes and they started coming in the Bible. He sent me a Bible that was with three or four days of getting home. I got the Bible. I threw it in a junk drawer and I never listened to the tapes. And we, uh, we developed this friendship and he literally loved me into the kingdom. He told me he prayed for my wife and I, our marriage fell apart. We, um, filled out divorce papers and had them notarized. We were, uh, Weeks later, you know, she asked for, you know, um, let's just file those papers. And uh, she, um, we were driving to the courthouse. So we got 10 minutes from filing them in Arizona. She changed her mind. I mean, if you don't think God will bring you to the edge in your life, 10 minutes I file those papers. I lose 25 years with a woman I never knew I could love like this. Mm-hmm. That was 20, 25 years ago. And, um, um, he ended every conversation with we, we, Carol and I, his wife, and we pray for your marriage. And it meant nothing to me, but he didn't care. This is a class in discipleship for the hard-headed, foul-mouthed, angry disciple <laughs> uh, congregant. But uh, I saw him the way he lived his life, and it was attractive. I saw the material things he had, which were attractive, to a pagan but in the end I found myself I was always drawn to men of character even when I was drinking there were guys in my neighborhood that went home and took care of their wives and kids yeah, I gotta go home I gotta go to work tomorrow and I just I used to laugh well work work ah, you know and uh, I was living on a mattress on a floor you know um, at 20 some years old so um Anyway, the time came, we, we got our marriage kind of sort of back on track and uh, a number of months went by 
and I was really just miserable. And Tammy finally said, Jeff, you're draining me. I'm going to take the kids and I'm going to go to my parents' house for the summer. I'm going to spend the whole summer with my parents. You got to figure out what you want to do. We got to either sell the house or uh, we got to cut our lifestyle, something you need to get, you need to, you need to start making some decisions. What do you want to do with your adult life? And uh, she was right. So I said, all right, well, okay, I'll, I'll take the summer, you know, and she gathered up all these tapes, about a year's worth, threw them at my feet. And uh, anyway, a campaign where I just listened, the first tape I pulled out of all these tapes, you think this is a coincidence, but it was Ecclesiastes. Um, and it's the NIV version, meaningless, meaningless, all in life is meaningless. And that first sermon I got, I listened to a sermon that changed my life. Um, that uh, they say an alcoholic can remember his first drink vividly, and I can. It was my sister's wedding, and I had a seven and seven Seagram seven and seven up, and it the change that came over me from that drink changed my life in a bad way. The moment I heard this sermon, and he summed it up. The summary was, life without God will have no meaning. Without meaning to your life, there's no purpose to your life. And without purpose to your life, suicide. And in one 45-minute sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, it summed up my eight-year conclusion that I had no meaning, I had no purpose. And I hadn't gotten to suicide, but it made sense to me if I went any longer. So I tore open all these envelopes looking for more Ecclesiastes tapes. I, I devoured the book of Ecclesiastes through this pastor in Denton, Texas. A 3,000-year-old document spoke more to me about life in America in the 20th, 20th century than any of those self-help books. You know, and I tell churches this all the time. You walk in any bookstore in America, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books of man's attempt to find meaning and purpose apart from God. The Bible stands alone. It never hasn't changed, hasn't changed in thousands of years. And um, I devoured that book, and I got to Genesis 1-1, which I think Francis Schaeffer said was the most pregnant verse in the Bible. It gives birth to everything else. In the beginning, God created and that's when I realized there was a God that was created, I was designed, and every cell in my body was put there uh, for a purpose. It wasn't some cosmic accident. I didn't fall out of a tree. I didn't, you know, primordial or whatever they tell you it is. I, you know, I'm not versed enough in, in their Genesis stories. But I knew there was a God. I called Philip, and uh, I was sobbing on the phone. There's a God. And he said, uh, yeah, I've been trying to tell you for like a year and a half, <laughs> you know? And, uh, I said, yeah, but I didn't know it. And he goes, you got a problem with it. I said, blasphemy. How's that? Cursing them, denying them. Why would he want me? I mean, I looked at what I was and who I was. And to think of walking in to that relationship, why would he want me? And he told me that's what the cross was for. He said, study the cross. Get out of Ecclesiastes, get out of Genesis, and go to the New Testament, study the cross. And when I heard the story of the prodigal son, man, I still to this day, 
25 years walking this faith, when I hear a good sermon on the prodigal son, I, I, I break down. What a great picture of sleeping with pigs and swines and filth in the Jewish faith. Right. Pigs. To come home and have your father, I'm going to get emotional again, I'm sorry, but to have your fathers push everything aside and run with open arms to his fallen son. What a great picture. What a great picture. And I knew I was welcome. That story, that thing, and the prostitute at the well, when Jesus said, if you drink from that water, you'll thirst again. And that spiritual thirst I had my whole, for that whole decade of my 30s, starting with self-help, I was trying to quench this thirst with New Age and Buddhism and humanism and all these other things that man has created. It quenched it for a while, but it would always thirst again. Jesus said, I offer you a living water. Drink from this well, and you will never thirst again. And I have never thirsted again for 25 years. I read other things, but it's not. I, I devour the Bible. And I try, try, believe me, I'm not, I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress, but I, I'm turning nowhere else we, for, for answers to these, for these existential questions, that's for sure. Uh, 25 years later, I, I can still hear the passion. I can still hear the emotion in your voice, and and besides the the comedy tour, I know you speak at churches and, and and share this testimony and tell this story over and over and over again, and and yet I can hear it. It doesn't get old to you, does it? No, not at all. It's it's life changing. You know, it's funny when you hear about people who've been wounded by their parents who've never healed, and that passion that they have, it, it's a negative passion, but that anger that comes up with it. You know, when something changes your life as profound as this, I mean, of course you want to shout it from the rooftops, you know? And, um, yeah, you're right. I, I've never, it, it, it hasn't gotten old. That's for sure for me. Um, and, and you hope that it reaches those hearts out there that are just seeking, seeking something you know something isn't right you know something doesn't fit you're not the kind of person you you behave in ways that you know aren't you and there's an answer there is an answer just get on your knees and and succumb to the calling he's calling you he really is Um, and once you submit to him that's where the strength comes from that's what's so paradoxical about the whole thing you know, the strength and character, the strengths and principles, the strengths to stand up. And, 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 you know, somebody once said that a man isn't truly alive till he has something in his life worth dying for. Something bigger than his own life. And, you know, I found it with my wife and my children. Yes, I'd like to think that I would die for them. Yeah. But, you know, I would die for this because I know it's real. Powerful, powerful stuff from comedian Jeff Allen. We'll be back to put a wrap on the show right after this. 
day, there are children who leave school on Friday and eat little, and sometimes nothing, until they come back to school on Monday. It happens in every community, including yours. Many of these children live in circumstances that deprive them of basic needs necessary for a quality life. At Grand Slam Ministries, we want to change that. We want to invest in our children, giving them hope for the future. That investment includes necessities such as food, clothing, school supplies, and a safe environment to play, to study, to live. Please visit our website, GrandSlamMinistries.org, to find out more about our ministry and how you can help. We're just getting started. Will you come alongside us for the children's sake? Again, that's GrandSlamMinistries.org. Want to see a listing of our affiliates? Check out videos or listen to past shows and explore our archives? It's all available at our website, danscottshow.org. And now, back to the show. We've got just about a minute to say goodbye. A little unusual, but I wanted to make sure that you got the crux of the Jeff Allen interview. And I actually cut about 15 minutes out of it. But you need to know that there are national folks out there who are unabashedly sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jeff Allen, who is a funny, funny man, is one of those people. We will be back with you again next week, same time on the same stations. Looking forward to continuing to tell stories of people who are seeing God work in their lives on a daily basis and hope that you are one of those folks. We'd love to hear from you. Dan at danscottshow.org. Let us know what you think, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, I am Dan saying God bless you, and so long, everybody.